where is Ruth? I saw her up there. Ruth, stand up. She hates this. Ruth is the one that coordinated Faith Day. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just stand up there. How many of you went to Faith Day? I heard there were like 100. Yeah, a whole bunch of you scattered throughout. Thank you for doing that. That's a lot of work. I'm glad I'm not in charge of it. It would never get done. And then uh, we have our Haiti, Haiti medical mission trip coming. How many of you have been to Haiti? Oh, wow, look at that. A large number of you. It's a fabulous trip. If you, uh, you want to go, call Cindy McDonald. Talk to her. It's worth exploring. It really is. Okay, so you heard about the um, baptism afterwards. Don't forget that. I think I'd like to start now and pray. Just pray for our country like I do every week. And, and pray for our world. You know, sometimes I get the feeling that our world is just tired. When Paul talked about all of creation is awaiting redemption, uh, our world is tired. And I hear about the earthquakes in Italy and the floods in Louisiana. And I could get up here every week and just give you a list of what's going on around the world that's hard. People have hard lives everywhere we look. And for just a few moments, we have it very nice here. I was telling the people over the top, it was sprinkling. Look, there was sun way down on the Gore Range on one of the peaks. Just enjoy that little bit of sunshine. And uh, let's stop and pray for our world. Father, we do lift up the people on this planet. Lord, uh, as Mark has reminded us that um, when you created all this, you said it is very good. You like material things. You like physical things. And Lord, we confess to you, so do we. We just love these mountains. We love the reservoir. We love the amphitheater. We love the beauty of it. And uh, we love the ability to stop just from time to time and enjoy what you have made for us. But God, we are, we are very aware that our world is tired as well and is uh, bearing, trying to bear up under the weight of sin. And uh, Lord, I know that you love this creation because you made it. Father, I pray for the people in Italy, those that have died in the earthquake, their, their families and friends. And Lord, I pray for the people in Louisiana and the flooding and, and just the other places that are around the world where people are struggling. Lord, Christians or not, it doesn't matter to me. I just know they're struggling. I pray, God, that you would be gracious to them, that you would bring your redemption into their lives and be merciful to them. Father, I lift up uh, this year as we, uh, as a country, choose another president. I pray, Lord, that you would place in office the one that you want to be there to carry out your will for our country. And I pray that you would use this opportunity, Lord, this election to draw the hearts of uh, the people in our country who have wandered away from you. I used to pray that you'd use this as an opportunity to draw their hearts back to you. And Lord, I continue to pray for our president and our uh, our government at all levels, our state, our local. Uh, I know we have some mayors sitting right here. And I just pray that you would continue to give them wisdom, Lord, as they administer their duties. And Lord, uh, help them to think in terms of what is righteous, because you said that when the righteous rule, we all rejoice. And so give them good, good thoughts about how to lead us well. Thank you, Lord. And then I pray for our time this morning. Thank you for uh, stopping the rain just briefly, although if it rains, we're just going to laugh and enjoy you anyway. But thanks for just giving us some space to uh, worship you one more Sunday. And thanks for another day of life, Lord, another day to bring honor to your name. Help us to uh, honor you well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
Okay, Psalm 118. We are uh, nearing the end of our theme. We've spent the summer, we have uh, this week and next week, we've spent the summer uh, talking, looking into the Psalms, the mirror of our collective souls. Yes, it does help for us individually to look into it, but it's good for us as a church to look into it. When the Psalms, they gave language to a people. We have a language in our culture, don't we, that define us as Americans. When I talk about the White House, you just know what I mean by that. When I talk about the Capitol, you know what I mean by that. And the Pledge of Allegiance and uh, the, the various songs that we sing at baseball games and football games, they, they help define us, don't they? Well, this, the praise psalms did that for Israel, and so we wanted to spend the summer looking into the praise psalms to give us some language. Hey, Mark, by the way, this is the first day I'm not squinting. There's no sun right there. Oh, it's kind of nice. I can see you. I can see you, Matt. How you doing? <laughs> so the Psalms, they give us language. They give us theology. They give us concepts to make sense of what it means to be the people of God. And today we're going to look at Psalm 118. Last week we looked at Psalm 110. And uh, Psalm 110 is great because it introduces to us a high priest that no one expected. No one expected the king and the priest to be the same person. When the Messiah came, they didn't envision that they would be the same because the law didn't allow that. To be the king, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Aaron and Levi. And all of a sudden, we have a Messiah who's coming, who's a king and a priest. His name is Jesus. So that's why God goes back to Melchizedek, who predates Aaron, to give us a sense of what it means to be a king and a priest. Today, we're going to learn something else about Jesus from Psalm 118. But first, I just want you to see this psalm. This, for what it is, this is a psalm, 118, that's the end of what they call the halal or the praise psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 were praise psalms. These were the, these were the core songs that they sang, the nation sang when they got together. Now remember, a little bit of history here. The nation of Israel was scattered around. They, had, they lived in a variety of different countries, and they were required every three, uh, three times a year to get together to celebrate the great festivals which they did. When they came together, you can imagine how wonderful it was for people to come. One of the things I enjoy about Sunday after Sunday when I walk through the group shaking hands is how many of you say, this is our third Sunday, this is our eighth Sunday, this is our 25th sun, uh, summer, I mean, not Sunday, summer of coming here. And there's a sense of, there's a sense of excitement. By the way, I see all your jackets. I'm from Florida. I refuse to wear a coat in August. I hope global warming is true because I'm waiting for a 100 degree day up here. I see all the coats. I love it when you tell me the stories of where you've, fr where you've come from because there's a, there's a sense which I get from most of you, almost all of you, that, wow, this is exciting. We get together. We get to come and worship at the amphitheater. We feel the same way that live here, by the way. That's our feeling as well. So you could just briefly imagine the excitement when the nation of Israel would gather three times a year from around the world, the partying, the laughter, the, uh, the, the festival of tabernacles. The, the later rabbis tell us that the music went 24 hours a day for eight days. And the Psalms 113 through 118, they would sing. They would sing together. When they got together, the leaders would gather all the people and say, let's go up to the house of the Lord, the temple, and we'll sing these songs together as a nation, remembering what God has done and how good he is. 
Isn't that a great picture? I just think that's such a wonderful picture. When we get to communion in a little bit, I'm going to invite, Rob's going to lead us in a song that you can all sing. It's an easy one, and you can at least hum it. And I'm going to invite all of you as you come to communion to sing, just to get a sense of what that's like, even if you just hum along. And you can picture, can't you, the nation that get together and the, and the leader leads them up to the temple and they're all singing these praise psalms. Well, Psalm 118, the one we're looking at today, is the last of that group. They all knew these songs. They would sing them together. Psalm 118 begins with words very familiar to us. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The psalm is going to take some twisting turns before we get to the very last verse, which says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. He starts and ends with the same line. And we're going to take some twists and turns through the middle of it in ways that impact some of you. Right off the bat, we have a lot of theology packed into this very first sentence. Give thanks to the Lord. It's all capitals, L-O-R-D. Give thanks to this one true living God. We believe as Christians there is one true living God who loves this entire creation. I always wonder why those horns, those panic alarms are there because we don't pay attention to them anymore. And I just did. Exactly. Give thanks to this one true God, for he is good. His love. This word love here, if we're not careful, we tend to make it a little smaller than it's meant to be. It's a wonderful Hebrew term. It's about my favorite of all the Hebrew terms. It's the word chesed. Chesed. And it's so much bigger than just simply love. It's one of the deepest, most profound words in the Old Testament. It has the idea of grace. If you think about a person who is a person of integrity, would a person be a person of integrity if he was an integrity only in your life, but he wasn't someplace else? He wouldn't, would he? He or she. You either are a person of integrity or you're not. This word captures that concept. You either show grace or you don't. If you show grace to people that you like, but not to people that you don't like, you are not a gracious person. You're a hypocrite. That's one of the core principles behind this word, is that grace. God is a God of grace, always. Always. In fact, in many of the older translations, translate this word as loving kindness, it's often grouped together with truth, loving kindness and truth. You see those descriptors used of God all throughout the Old Testament, loving kindness and truth. When you get to the New Testament, you see the same combination used of Jesus in John 1. He is full of grace and truth. That's where that phrase came from, the combination of these words. Jesus is always gracious. Sometimes it's not in ways that we're comfortable with, but he's always gracious. And so right off the bat, this is just filled with theology. We should give thanks to this one true God because he is trustworthy. We can count on him. He is good. His grace, his loving kindness, his commitment to his own creation, which we call covenant, his commitment to us is for our good. Now, he does give us freedom to reject him, but that does not change his heart. His heart is one of commitment. And truth, grace, and it endures forever. 
We love to pull out the verse that says that the sins of the fathers will be visited on the children for three or four generations. And we rarely read the second half of the same sentence. But his loving kindness, his chesed, endures for thousands of generations. That's God's way of telling us that whatever punishment we may experience is insignificant compared to this wonderful, incredible grace. That's how the psalm begins. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Now, as we read the psalm, picture this. You're with the throng. You're with the nation. And you're all together celebrating one of the festivals. And you're singing this together. Okay? Let everyone who believes in the Lord say his love endures forever. That should be our battle cry. That should be our praise. His love endures forever. He is trustworthy. Not everybody believes it, including some of the little ones. Then he goes on from there. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. Now, this is going to be communicated in languages of I and me, but he's representing the entire nation when he says this, and you'll see why in just a little bit. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. That's the Lord that we talk about. By the way, here is one of those places. He is my helper. Uh, as some of you know that are in our church, we've been in the discussion of the role of gender. And one of the questions that has come up is, is in Genesis, when it talks about Genesis 2.18, that he, I will make a helper, uh, the older translation, the help meet, the help mate for uh, the man. Here is, that, here is that word right here. And it gives us a beautiful picture of what God intended in Genesis. The, the noun helper is used of God almost exclusively, except for that verse in Genesis 2 when it describes the woman. And what he's talking about there is the man is incomplete. The man can't fulfill the mandate that God has given him without the woman. It's a wonderful picture of how a woman is, is created not to, to come alongside and to complete what is lacking. So God uses this term of himself all throughout the Old Testament. He promises to be a helper to Israel. What that means is he's going to come alongside because they're in trouble. They can't finish the task. And here it is right here. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. He is the one who steps in because I simply can't go the rest of the way. We're going to raise the question in just a minute because it's in here. How many of you are at the end of your own rope? How many of you are at the end of the line? Don't give up. You're so close. You're so close. Now, let's look at how God helps. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. He's beginning to use military metaphors, military words here. And so apparently sometime in their past, Israel was in trouble and they're surrounded by enemies. And the Lord redeemed them. He stepped in. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Now, this man didn't do this by himself. He's a leader representing the nation. And all the nation is singing this praise song saying, yes, we remember. You know, the battle hymn of the republic. We have that language ourselves, don't we? They swarmed around me like bees. They were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. 
I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of victory of joy, uh, shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. So you have the picture of the army out there living in their tents and they're, they're proclaiming victory and joy and they're shouting, the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord right hand, Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. This is a picture of they were surrounded and they were about to lose and the Lord stepped in. They had reached the end as a nation of their own abilities. They had reached the end. That's what a helper does. God stepped in and delivered them. Some of you are pleading with God right now to step in and deliver. I understand. I've been there. Many of us have. The Lord is a helper. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's such a beautiful picture to me of what a marriage should be. When one of us is in trouble, the other one steps in and helps. And there it is. But then he does something very interesting here. The, the psalm from this point on begins to take twists and turns that surprises us, surprises me. We're not expecting it. I will not die, but I will live. And I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely. Isn't that interesting language? I mean, whatever this battle was, it had to be ferocious for the leaders. To take your army out and to be on the verge of losing. Or for each of you to be in a place where, where the world is caving in on you. Maybe you just found out that you're actually almost bankrupt in your business. Maybe some of you found out you're, you have cancer, you're sick. Maybe some of you just have found out your spouse hasn't been faithful, your child's in trouble. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank and the world is caving in. It's collapsing on top of you. The Lord has chastened me severely. The Lord never runs from his responsibility. He never shirks it. I think it's so amazing that in the story of Job, at the end, when Job finally has an audience with God, all he has to say is, that was Satan who did that, and he doesn't. He said, would you really annul my judgment? That's his conclusion to Job. Would you really make yourself look good at my expense? This was my decision and mine alone, what happened to you. The Lord has chastened me severely. This person has been to the edge of the cliff, cliff, has been there. And what does he say? But he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. What is the gate? Severe chastening. I've often wondered, I don't know the answer to this. I've often wondered if we were, uh, if we were created to experience something like this so that we truly can appreciate how wonderful God is. I don't know the answer to that. But I know in my own life, many of you have heard my story. In my own life, losing my wife and other things like that, my first wife, that, that it built within me a deep, deep and passionate love for the Lord, one that's never simmered, never died, never cooled off. I know some of you have that same testimony. Let me say it again. If you're at the end of the rope, if you're standing on the edge of the cliff, 
when you feel like you're about to fall, you are so close. You're so close. Just hang in there just a little bit longer. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And then he says, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And then he throws us a curveball, takes us in a direction we don't expect. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who's he talking about here? Well, they didn't have a developed view of the Messiah at this point. This verse is used by, Paul, uh, by Peter in Acts 4 to help us understand that this is Jesus. But in this context, he's talking about the nation of Israel. The stone which the builders rejected, God chose Israel. Remember how this works? You have God and he surrounds himself by all these nations and he chooses one to reach the rest of the nations. I used to use the metaphor of a kaleidoscope, but only the older people will know what that means these days. Okay, he created a kaleidoscope of nations and he chose one, the nation of Israel, to reach the rest. That was their task. By the way, that's the core meaning of election. You were chosen for a purpose. And he chose Israel to reach the rest of the nations. And so the stone which God designed, the chief cornerstone, their job was to set the foundation stone for our theology, our understanding of the one true God. Their job was to reach the rest of the world. And what happened? They, re they were rejected. They were rejected. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. We were rejected. The world turned against us. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Isn't that puzzling language? It's amazing. You know what's behind it, I think? If we could do it, we would grab the glory wouldn't we? If we could save some accounting, we would grab the glory. We can't. We can't. It's impossible. It's out of our reach. We can't accomplish it. All we can do is be faithful and love the people of this county. We can be gracious like the Lord and show grace to everyone like Jesus did. That's what we can do. That's our only option. Whether or not they turn to the Lord, that's between them and the, and the Lord. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's why he's praising God for this. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. For the Lord is God. And he made his light to shine on us with bows in hand, join in the festival procession. That's the idea of the nation coming together, going to the temple. This was the verse quoted by Jesus in all four Gospels. On Palm Sunday, when the people cut the palms and the bows and they waved the palms and they laid down their jackets, this was the verse right here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is where we find the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm is in Jesus, right there. You are my God, I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endureth forever. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. And uh, Lord, we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. We're going to take an offering. Help us to do it in a way that says, we praise you, God, for you are good. Lord, I know it's sprinkling again. Just give us another 10 minutes. Help us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. You are good. Jesus, thank you for 
for helping us understand this song, what it means to come in the name of the Lord, what it means to, to go through that severe chastening where you would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was your path to enter into the gates through the gates of the righteous. Lord, I pray for my friends here that are just on the edge of the cliff. Help them, Lord, just to hang in there for just a little bit longer. And I pray that you would deliver them like you did Jesus, like you did with me, and like you have with so many of us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to take the offering. We're going to take the offering and have communion, and it will be done. Thank you for your uh, generosity. So this song that we're going to play is called Old Muddy River. And it's uh, essentially a story song about a couple of different characters reaching the end of their rope and deciding that the way that they've been going is, is not, uh, not, the, not the way to go. And there's a turning. And uh, the symbol of the old muddy river of going down to be baptized, going down as a person who was going in one direction and being raised in a new life to go the Lord's direction is uh, what's going on. So. Does that old muddy river have 